Section 11 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Mestrius Plutarchus. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Alexander, Chapters 22 to 31. Moreover, when Philoxenus, the commander of his forces on the seaboard, wrote that there was with him a certain Theodorus of Tarentum, who had two boys of surpassing beauty to sell, and inquired whether Alexander would buy them, Alexander was incensed, and cried out many times to his friends, asking them what shameful thing Philoxenus had ever seen in him that he should spend his time in making such disgraceful proposals and on Philoxenus himself he heaped much reproach in a letter, bidding him send Theodorus to perdition, merchandise and all. He severely rebuked Hagnon also for writing to him that he wanted to buy Crobulus, whose beauty was famous in Corinth as a present for him. Furthermore, on learning that Damon and Timotheus, two Macedonian soldiers under Parmenio's command, had ruined the wives of certain mercenaries, he wrote to Parmenio, ordering him, in case the men were convicted, to punish them and put them to death as wild beasts born for the destruction of mankind. In this letter he also wrote expressly concerning himself, As for me, indeed, it will be found not only that I have not seen the wife of Darius, or desired to see her, but that I have not even allowed people to speak to me of her beauty. And he used to say that sleep and sexual intercourse, more than anything else, made him conscious that he was mortal implying that both weariness and pleasure arise from one and the same natural weakness. He had also the most complete mastery over his appetite, and showed this both in many other ways, and especially by what he said to Ada, whom he honoured with the title of mother and made queen of Caria, when namely, in the kindness of her heart, she used to send him day by day many viands and sweetmeats, and finally offered him bakers and cooks reputed to be very skilful. He said he wanted none of them, for he had better cooks which had been given him by his tutor Leonidas, for his breakfast, namely a night march, and for his supper, a light breakfast. And this same Leonidas, he said, used to come and open my chests of bedding and clothing to see that my mother did not hide there for me some luxury or superfluity. To the use of wine also he was less addicted than was generally believed. The belief arose from the time which he would spend over each cup, more in talking than in drinking, always holding some long discourse, and this too when he had abundant leisure. For in the stress of affairs he was not to be detained, as other commanders were, either by wine, or sleep, or any sport, or amour, or spectacle. This is proved by his life, which, though altogether brief, he filled to overflowing with the greatest exploits. In his times of leisure, however, after rising and sacrificing to the gods, he immediately took breakfast sitting. Then he would spend the day in hunting, or administering justice, or arranging his military affairs, or reading. If he were making a march, which was not very urgent, he would practice, as he went along, either archery or mounting and dismounting from a chariot that was under way. Often, too, for diversion, he would hunt foxes or birds, as may be gathered from his journals, after he had taken quarters for the night, and while he was enjoying bath or anointing, he would inquire of his chief cooks and bakers whether the arrangements for his supper were duly made, 
When it was late and already dark, he would begin his supper, reclining on a couch, and marvellous was his care and circumspection at table, in order that everything might be served impartially and without stint. But over the wine, as I have said, he would sit long, for conversation's sake. And although in other ways he was of all princes most agreeable in his intercourse, and endowed with every grace, at this time his boastfulness would make him unpleasant and very like a common soldier. Not only was he himself carried away into blustering, but he suffered himself to be ridden by his flatterers. These were a great annoyance to the finer spirits in the company, who desired neither to vie with the flatterers, nor yet to fall behind them in praising Alexander. The one course they thought disgraceful, the other had its perils. After the drinking was over, he would take a bath and sleep, frequently until midday, and sometimes he would actually spend the entire day in sleep. In the matter of delicacies, too, he himself, at all events, was master of his appetite, so that often, when the rarest fruits or fish were brought to him from the sea-coast, he would distribute them to each of his companions until he was the only one for whom nothing remained. His suppers, however, were always magnificent, and the outlay upon them increased with his successes until it reached the sum of ten thousand drachmas. There it stood, and that was the prescribed limit of expenditure for those who entertained Alexander. After the Battle of Issus, footnote November 333 BC, end footnote, he sent to Damascus and seized the money and baggage of the Persians together with their wives and children, and most of all did the Thessalian horsemen enrich themselves, for they had shown themselves surpassingly brave in the battle, and Alexander sent them on this expedition purposely, wishing to have them enrich themselves. But the rest of the army also was filled with wealth, then, for the first time, the Macedonians got a taste of gold and silver and women and barbaric luxury of life, and now that they had struck the trail, they were like dogs in their eagerness to pursue and track down the wealth of the Persians. However, Alexander determined first to make himself master of the sea coasts. As for Cyprus then, its kings came at once and put the island in his hands, together with Phoenicia, with the exception of Tyre but Tyre he besieged for seven months with moles and engines of war and two hundred triremes by sea. Footnote. January to August 332 BC. End footnote. During this siege he had a dream, in which he saw Heracles stretching out his hands to him from the wall and calling him, and many of the Tyrians dreamed that Apollo told them he was going away to Alexander, since he was displeased at what was going on in the city. Whereupon, as if the god had been a common deserter caught in the act of going over to the enemy, they encircled his colossal figure with cords and nailed it down to its pedestal, calling him an Alexandrist. In another dream, too, Alexander thought he saw a satyr who mocked him at a distance and eluded his grasp when he tried to catch him, but finally, after much coaxing and chasing, surrendered. The seers, dividing the word satyros into two parts, said to him plausibly enough, Tyre is to be thine and a spring is pointed out, near which Alexander dreamed he saw the satyr. While the siege of the city was in progress, he made an expedition against the Arabians, who dwelt in the neighbourhood of Mount Antilibanus. On this expedition he risked his life to save his tutor Lysimachus, who insisted on following him, declaring himself to be neither older nor weaker than Phoenix. But when the force drew near the mountains, they abandoned their horses and proceeded on foot, and most of them got far on in advance. Alexander himself, however, would not consent to abandon the worn and weary Lysimachus, since evening was already coming on and the enemy were near, 
but sought to encourage him and carry him along. Before he was aware of it, therefore, he was separated from his army with a few followers, and had to spend a night of darkness and intense cold in a region that was rough and difficult. In this plight he saw far off a number of scattered fires which the enemy were burning. So, since he was confident in his own agility, and was ever wont to cheer the Macedonians in their perplexities by sharing their toils, he ran to the nearest campfire. Two barbarians, who were sitting at the fire, he dispatched with his dagger, and snatching up a firebrand, brought it to his own party. These kindled a great fire, and at once frightened some of the enemy into flight, routed others who came up against them, and spent the night without further peril. Such, then, is the account we have from Cares. The siege of the city had the following issue. While Alexander was giving the greater part of his forces a rest from the many struggles which they had undergone, and was leading up only a few men to attack the walls, in order that the enemy might have no respite, Aristander the seer made a sacrifice, and, after taking the omens, declared very confidently to the bystanders that the city would certainly be captured during that month. His words produced laughter and jesting, since it was then the last day of the month, and the king, seeing that he was perplexed, and being always eager to support his prophecies, gave orders to reckon that day, not as the thirtieth of the month, but as the twenty-eighth, and then, after the trumpet had sounded the signal, he attacked the walls with greater vigour than he had at first intended. The assault became fierce, and even those troops which had been left in camp could not restrain themselves, but ran in throngs to help the assailants, and the Tyrians gave up the fight, so Alexander took the city on that day. After this, as he was giving siege to Gaza, the principal city of Syria, footnote, during September and October of 332 BC, end footnote, a clod of earth, which had been dropped from on high by a bird, struck him on the shoulder. The bird alighted on one of the battering engines, and was at once caught in the network of sinews which were used to give a twist to the ropes, and the omen was fulfilled as Aristander predicted, for though Alexander was wounded in the shoulder, he took the city. Moreover, as he was dispatching great quantities of the spoils home to Olympias and Cleopatra and his friends, he sent also to Leonidas, his tutor, five hundred talents' weight of frankincense and a hundred of myrrh, in remembrance of the hope with which that teacher had inspired his boyhood. It would seem, namely, that Leonidas, as Alexander was one day sacrificing and taking incense with both hands to throw upon the altar fire, said to him, Alexander, when thou hast conquered the spice-bearing regions, thou canst be thus lavished with thine incense. Now, however, use sparingly what thou hast. Accordingly, Alexander now wrote him, I have sent thee myrrh and frankincense in abundance, that thou mayest stop dealing parsimoniously with the gods. When a small coffer was brought to him, which those in charge of the baggage and wealth of Darius thought the most precious thing there, he asked his friends what valuable object they thought would most fittingly be deposited in it. And when many answered, and there were many opinions, Alexander himself said he was going to deposit the Iliad there for safekeeping. This is attested by many trustworthy authorities, and if what the Alexandrians tell us on the authority of Heraclides is true, then it would seem that Homer was no idle or unprofitable companion for him in his expedition. They say, namely, that after his conquest of Egypt, he wished to found a large and populous Greek city which should bear his name, and by the advice of his architects was on the point of measuring off and enclosing a certain site for it. Then in the night, as he lay asleep, he saw a wonderful vision, a man with very hoary locks and of a venerable aspect appeared to stand by his side and recite these verses. Now there is an island in the much-dashing sea, in front of Egypt. Pharos is what men call it. Accordingly, he rose up at once and went to Pharos, 
which at that time was still an island, a little above the canobic mouth of the Nile, but now it has been joined to the mainland by a causeway. And when he saw a sight of surpassing natural advantages, for it is a strip of land like enough to a broad isthmus, extending between a great lagoon and a stretch of sea which terminates in a large harbour, he said he saw now that Homer was not only admirable in other ways, but also a very wise architect, and ordered the plan of the city to be drawn in conformity with this site. There was no chalk at hand, so they took barley meal, and marked out with it on the dark soil a round area, to whose inner arc straight lines extended so as to produce the figure of a clamis, or military cloak, the lines beginning from the skirts, as one may say, and narrowing the breadth of the area uniformly. The king was delighted with the design, but suddenly birds from the river and the lagoon, infinite in number and of every sort and size, settled down upon the place like clouds, and devoured every particle of the barley meal, so that even Alexander was greatly disturbed at the omen. However, the seers exhorted him to be of good cheer, since the city here founded by him would have most abundant and helpful resources, and be a nursing mother for men of every nation. And so he ordered those in charge of the work to proceed with it, while he himself set out for the temple of Ammon. The journey thither was long, full of toils and hardships, and had two perils. One is the dearth of water, which leaves the traveller destitute of it for many days. The other arises when a fierce south wind smites men travelling in sand of boundless depth, as is said to have been the case with the army of Cambyses long ago. The wind raised great billows of sand all over the plain, and buried up fifty thousand men to their utter destruction. Almost all of Alexander's followers to call these things into consideration, but it was difficult to turn him aside from any course soever when he had once set out upon it. For fortune, by yielding to his onsets, was making his purpose obstinate, and the high spirit which he carried into his undertakings rendered his ambition finally invincible, so that it subdued not only enemies, but even times and places. At all events, during the journey which he made at this time, the assistance rendered him by heaven in his perplexities met with more credence than the oracles which he afterwards received. Nay, in a way, the oracles obtained credence in consequence of such assistance. For to begin with, much rain from heaven and persistent showers removed all fear of thirst, quenched the dryness of the sand so that it became moist and compact, and made the air purer and good to breathe. Again, when the marks for the guides became confused, and the travellers were separated and wandered about in ignorance of the route, ravens appeared and assumed a direction of their march, flying swiftly on in front of them when they followed, and waiting for them when they marched slowly and lagged behind. Footnote. According to Ptolemy, son of Lagos, two serpents served Alexander's army as guides to the oracle and back again. Quote, but Aristobulus, whose account is generally admitted to be correct, says that two ravens flew in front of the army and acted as Alexander's guides. End quote. Arian. End footnote. Moreover, what was most astonishing of all, Callisthenes tells us, that the birds by their cries called back those who had straggled away in the night, and cawed until they had set them in the track of the march. When Alexander had passed through the desert, and was come to the place of the oracle, the prophet of Ammon gave him salutation from the god as from a father, whereupon Alexander asked him whether any of the murderers of his father had escaped him. To this the prophet answered by bidding him be guarded in his speech, since his was not a mortal father. Alexander therefore changed the form of his question and asked whether the murderers of Philip had all been punished, and then, regarding his own empire, he asked whether it was given to him to become lord and master of all mankind. The god gave answer that this was given to him, and that Philip was fully avenged.
Then Alexander made splendid offerings to the god and gave his priests large gifts of money. This is what most writers state regarding the oracular responses, but Alexander himself, in a letter to his mother, says that he received certain secret responses which he would tell to her and to her alone on his return. And some say that the prophet, wishing to show his friendliness by addressing him with O Pideon or O my son in his foreign pronunciation, ended the words with S instead of N and said O Pideos, and that Alexander was pleased at the slip in pronunciation, and a story became current that the god had addressed him with O Pideos, or son of Zeus. We are told also that he listened to the teachings of Samon, the philosopher in Egypt, and accepted most readily this utterance of his, namely, that all mankind are under the kingship of God, since in every case that which gets the mastery and rules is divine. Still more philosophical, however, was his own opinion and utterance on this head, namely, that although God was indeed a common father of all mankind, still he made particularly his own the noblest and best of them. In general, he bore himself haughtily towards the barbarians, and like one fully persuaded of his divine birth and parentage, but with the Greeks it was within limits, and somewhat rarely that he assumed his own divinity. However, in writing to the Athenians concerning Samos, he said, I cannot have given you that free and illustrious city, for ye received it from him who was then your master and was called my father, meaning Philip. At a later time, however, when he had been hit by an arrow and was suffering great pain, he said, This, my friends, that flows here is blood, and not ichor, such as flows from the veins of the blessed gods. Once, too, there came a great peal of thunder, and all were terrified at it, whereupon Anaxarchus the sophist, who was present, said to Alexander, Couldst thou, the son of Zeus, thunder like that? At this Alexander laughed and said, Nay, I do not wish to cause fear in my friends, as thou wouldst have me do, thou who despisest my suppers, because, as thou sayest, thou seest the tables furnished with fish, and not with satraps' heads. For in fact we are told that Anaxarchus, on seeing a presentation of small fish which the king had sent to Hephaestion, had uttered the speech above mentioned, as though he were disparaging and ridiculing those who undergo great toils and dangers in the pursuit of eminence and power, since in the way of enjoyments and pleasures they have little or nothing more than other men. From what has been said then, it is clear that Alexander himself was not foolishly affected or puffed up by the belief in his divinity, but used it for the subjugation of others. When he had returned from Egypt into Phoenicia, footnote, early in 331 BC, end footnote, he honoured the gods with sacrifices and solemn processions, and held contests of dithyrambic choruses and tragedies which were made brilliant not only by their furnishings, but also by the competitors who exhibited them. For the kings of Cyprus were the Choregi, or exhibitors, just like at Athens, those chosen by lot from the tribes, and they competed against each other with amazing ambition. Most eager of all was the contention between Nicocreon of Salamis and Pasocrates of Soli. For the lot assigned to these exhibitors the most celebrated actors, to Pasocrates, Athenodorus, and to Nicocreon, Thessalus, in whose success Alexander himself was interested, he did not reveal this interest, however, until, by the votes of the judges, Athenodorus had been proclaimed victor. But then, as it would appear, on leaving the theatre, he said that he approved the decision of the judges, but would gladly have given up a part of his kingdom rather than to have seen Thessalus vanquished. And yet, when Athenodorus, who had been fined by the Athenians for not keeping his engagement in the dramatic contest of the Dionysiac festival, 
asked the king to write a letter to them on his behalf. Though he would not do this, he sent them the amount of the fine from his own purse. Furthermore, when Lycon of Scarfea, who was acting successfully before Alexander, inserted into the comedy a verse containing a request for ten talents, Alexander laughed and gave them to him. When Darius sent to him a letter and friends, footnote, this was during the siege of Tyre, according to Arian, end footnote, begging him to accept 10,000 talents as ransom for the captives, to hold all the territory this side of the Euphrates, to take one of his daughters in marriage, and on these terms to be his ally and friend, Alexander imparted the matter to his companions. If I were Alexander, said Parmenio, I would accept these terms. And so indeed would I, said Alexander, were I Parmenio. But to Darius he wrote, Come to me, and thou shalt receive every courtesy, but otherwise I shall march at once against thee. Footnote. This was but the conclusion of an arrogant letter. End footnote. Soon, however, he repented him of this answer, when the wife of Darius died in childbirth, and it was evident that he was distressed at this loss of opportunity to show great kindness. Accordingly, he gave the woman a sumptuous burial. One of the eunuchs of the bedchamber, who had been captured with the women, Tyrios by name, ran away from the camp, made his way on horseback to Darius, and told him of the death of his wife. Then the king, beating upon his head and bursting into lamentation, said, Alas for the evil genius of the Persians! If the sister and wife of their king must not only become a captive in her life, but also in her death be deprived of royal burial. Nay, O king, answered the chamberlain, as regards her burial, and her receiving every fitting honour, thou hast no charge to make against the evil genius of the Persians. For neither did my mistress, Tatyra, while she lived, or thy mother, or thy children, lack any of their former great blessings, except the light of thy countenance, which Lord Oromazdes will cause to shine again with lustre. Nor after her death was she deprived of any funeral adornment. Nay, she was honoured with the tears of enemies, for Alexander is as gentle after victory as he is terrible in battle. When Darius heard this, his agitation and grief swept him into absurd suspicions and leading the eunuch away into a more secluded part of his tent, he said, If thou also, together with the fortune of the Persians, dost not side with the Macedonians, and if I, Darius, am still thy lord and master, tell me, as thou reverest the great light of Mithras and the right hand of thy king, is it not the least of Statyra's misfortunes that I am now lamenting? While she was alive, did I not suffer more pitiful evils, and would not my wretched fortune have been more compatible with my honour if I had met with an angry and savage enemy. For what intercourse that is proper can a young man have with an enemy's wife when it leads to such marks of honour? While the king was still speaking, Tyrios threw himself down at his feet and besought him to hold his peace, and neither to wrong Alexander, nor shame his dead sister and wife, nor rob himself of the greatest consolation for his disasters, namely the belief that he had been conquered by a man who was superior to human nature. Nay, he should even admire Alexander for having shown greater self-restraint in dealing with Persian women than valour against Persian men. Then, while the eunuch was confirming his testimony with the most solemn oaths and discoursing on the general self-mastery and magnanimity of Alexander, Darius went out to his companions and, lifting his hands towards heaven, prayed, O ye gods of my race and kingdom, above all things else, grant that I may leave the fortune of Persia, re-established in the prosperity wherein I found it, in order that my victory may enable me to requite Alexander for the favours which I received at his hands, when I had lost my dearest possessions. But if, then, a fated time has now come, due to divine jealousy, 
and the vicissitudes of things, and the sway of the Persians must cease, grant that no other man may sit upon the throne of Cyrus but Alexander. That these things were thus done and said is the testimony of most historians. But to return to Alexander, when he had subdued all the country on this side of the Euphrates, he marched against Darius, who was coming down to meet him with a million men. Footnote, late June or July of 331 BC, end footnote. On this march, one of his companions told him, as a matter worth laughing at, that the camp followers, in sport, had divided themselves into two bands, and set a general and commander over each of them, one of whom they called Alexander, and the other Darius, and that they had begun by pelting one another with clods of earth, then had fought with their fists, and finally, heated with the desire of battle, had taken to stones and sticks, being now many and hard to quell. When he heard this, Alexander ordered the leaders themselves to fight in single combat. To the one called Alexander, he himself gave armour, and to the one called Darius, Philotus. The army were spectators of the combat, counting the issue as in some measure an omen of the future. After a strenuous battle, the one called Alexander was victorious, and received as a reward twelve villages and the right to wear Persian dress. This, at any rate, is what we are told by Eratosthenes. Now the great battle against Darius was not fought at Arbella, as most writers state, but at Galgamela. The word signifies, we are told, camel's house, since one of the ancient kings of the country, after escaping from his enemies on a swift camel, gave the animal a home there, assigning certain villages and revenues for its maintenance. It so happened that in the month Bodromion, the moon suffered an eclipse, about the beginning of the mysteries at Athens. Footnote, September 20th, 331 BC. End footnote. And on the eleventh night after the eclipse, the armies being now in sight of one another, Darius kept his forces under arms, and held a review of them by torchlight. But Alexander, while his Macedonians slept, himself passed the night in front of his tent with his seer Aristander, celebrating certain mysterious sacred rites and sacrificing to the god fear. Meanwhile, the older of his companions, and particularly Parmenio, when they saw the plain between the Niphates and the Gordian mountains, all lighted up with the barbarian fires, while an indistinguishably mingled and tumultuous sound of voices arose from their camp as if from a vast ocean, were astonished at their multitude, and argued with one another that it was a great and grievous task to repel such a tide of war by engaging in broad daylight. They therefore waited upon the king, when he had finished his sacrifices, and tried to persuade him to attack the enemy by night, and so to cover up with darkness the most fearful aspect of the coming struggle. But he gave them the celebrated answer, I will not steal my victory. Whereupon some thought that he had made a vainglorious reply, and was jesting in the presence of so great a peril. Others, however, thought that he had confidence in the present situation, and estimated the future correctly, not offering Darius, in case of defeat, an excuse to pluck up courage again for another attempt, by laying the blame this time upon darkness and night, as he had before upon mountains, defiles, and sea. For Darius would not give up the war for lack of arms, or men, when he could draw from so great a host and so vast a territory, but only when he had lost courage and hope, under the conviction brought by a downright defeat in broad daylight. End of section 11